test. Oh, there it is. We have been going through a, a very powerful introduction by the Apostle Paul to the people in Coloss. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. If you, if you know anything about Paul's writing and how he formulates his letters, I mean, he, he just writes letters. And somewhat similar to what, what we have, or the way we used to. Some of you probably don't even remember how we used to write letters, but it was, it was always a, a salutation, uh, the people you were sending it to, and then there was an address at the end saying, this is who it's from. And uh, so in, in the New Testament, uh, and mainly a lot of writings, and they, found, they have found a lot of writings uh, of letters being sent to parents or specifically fathers from sons that were in the war, and, and they all start the same way. The way these letters start, they all start the same way. So we know that they're letters. They call them epistles. And in, in every one of the letters and epistles that Paul wrote, he always gave an introduction, a salutation, and I should say almost everyone. There was one letter where he just didn't give no commendation whatsoever. Uh, he, was, he went straight into the rebuke. He's talking to the people in Galatia. It's a region, kind of like the Inland Empire. It's not a city. It's, it's a region. And uh, in the, the region of Galatia, these little cities, they were just going after a whole different gospel. And so Paul just lays into them right away. And for the next five chapters, that's what he's talking about. You know, this, and, and so for Paul, he always wants to get the doctrine straight. And then he gives us the uh, lifestyle, what you, we should do with it. Romans, half the book of Romans, all, half of it is, is all doctrine. The other half from chapter 12 on is all practical application. Same thing with 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. We did that with uh, Ephesians. Um, and uh, Philippians, and now we're going into Colossians. So the first two chapters of Colossians, actually three, are all doctrine, and then Paul gives us application at the end. And so before he gets into the doctrinal part of it, he's given us the introduction. He's given the, talking to the people in Coloss, and next week we will go into the preeminence of Christ. And when we say preeminence, we say Christ is above all, all things. Christ has always been, never was created. And so he's addressing an issue at the church in Coloss. He's addressing... Somebody going around saying, no, no, uh, Jesus Christ is, is not, you know, he's, he's a created being. No, he's not God. He can't be God. You know, there's no way. And we'll talk a little bit more about that, and I'll give you some more outlines as far as the thought on Jewish tradition and Gnosticism. And uh, I'll, I'll explain that a little bit more later. And I'm going to try to give you at least just a little bit of what these what these philosophies are. Jewish tradition, you probably know some of it already. A lot of it is, is following the laws of Moses. Uh, circumcision was a big thing for the Jewish people. You have to be circumcised in order to be saved. You have to follow the traditions. You have to follow the, the holidays and uh, all the ceremonies and everything else that had to go to, you had to go through. Yes, we believe in Jesus Christ, but you also have to do this. Certain prayers, certain stances, and all these other things. And this is what Paul is dealing with in the people in Colossus. So Colossians to us is very up to date as well because we have, within our midst, we have people, not in our churches, I hope, but uh, people come from different backgrounds and they come with uh, the understanding and thought, well, that's the way I learned it. That's the way I was taught. Well, this is what the Bible teaches. This is what the Bible says. And, and so when we talk about Reformation, Reformation, uh, it, it was it was Martin Luther that was not trying to start a revolt. He wasn't trying to you know, start a new denomination or anything else. He was trying to get the church back on track to the apostolic teachings from the very beginning. And he kept saying, you know, these, these indulgences that you guys are, are putting out. And, and I have a list of all of them and, and I don't want to read them all, but I at least want to give you some idea of what he was talking about. You know, because he starts off 
when, and it's called 95, we call it 95 Thesis, but what, what, it, what it really is is a disputation to clarify the power of indulgences. A thesis is basically, this is the argument that I'm going to make. I'm going to make this argument. In, in presenting a paper, if you've gone to college, or if you've, you know a little bit about you know, education, they, they always tell you, you know, present, your sta- present the status quo. Present what, what the problem is. The thesis, this is the problem. Here's what's going on. And uh, this is the accepted worldview, the accepted idea or thought. And, and now I'm going to give you an antithesis. Uh, an antithesis. And, and that's, you know, with the problem, with the thesis. Here's the problem with this thinking of what you guys are talking about. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to synthesize it, and I'm going to bring it all together and show you why my argument is valid. And so when when Martin Luther put this together, his thesis, or this, this is the problem that we're dealing with. This is what's going on. And I want to uh, dispute that. I want to argue the fact. I don't want to argue with you guys. I don't want to start another denomination. I want to argue that what we're doing is wrong, especially with indulgences. Indulgences are a way of being able to pay the church, or specifically the clergy, to pray for people that are in purgatory or are in, uh, that are dying. And, and so Martin Luther says, that's not the way it works. Either you're saved or you're not. You know, it's by grace that you're saved through faith. This is what Paul tells us in Ephesus. And so in, in all these 95 points, these 95 arguments, these 95 theses of what he's talking about, what he's trying to get across is, look, we need to have a, dis- we need to have a, an argument. We need to have a conversation about all these things. And one of his friends says, well, you know, they called Martin Luther, and he says, you know, I can't make it. Would you go for me? He says, yeah, I'll go. And so the very first thing they did is as soon as he got there with all his books and paperwork and everything else, okay, let's have this argument. Let's look at the Bible. First thing they did is they arrested him and burned him at the stake. And then Martin Luther says, hey, what happened? He goes, well, we wanted to talk with you. Why don't you come and argue with us? He says, I ain't going over there. <laughs> you know, Mamba didn't raise no fool. I'm like, and, and Martin Luther, to some extent, was a was a very uh, articulate. He was a, he was a, an attorney, uh, learned, schooled. He had the background of a lawyer, and so when he looked at the law, he says, "Well, this is what the law says." And when he looked at the practicality of it in the church, but this is what we're doing. And so he was torn. He was literally torn. Uh, some people thought he was a madman. The way he talked to himself, the way he wandered around, and kept. You know, going back and forth, what do I do? Until one day, tradition has it that a bolt of lightning came down. He struck him right, well, not struck him, but landed right in front of him. And he says, okay, Lord, whatever you say, I'm going to do it. And so he was a very eccentric type of a person because of the intelligence and the, the, the information that he had. And finally, he just wrote it all down. So in 1517, uh, he worked on this, this project. And on, on October 31st, which is tomorrow, he nailed it to the door uh, of the church in Wittenberg. And what what took place from that, well, that's what they say that he did. Tradition has it, that's what he did, that's what they used to have to do. But, but you think about this, 95 Theses, there's, there's a big old long list of all these this questions that he wants to argue with the church with. But, but what he did do, he, he made sure that there was a copy sent to the church. And that's what started it all. That's what started it all. And so from that point forward, we had learned that salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. From that point forward, we started to see that the Bible itself needs to be placed in man's hands. Prior, about a, almost a hundred years before Martin Luther, there was a guy named uh, Tyndale, William Tyndale, that translated the Latin Bible into English using the, the Greek uh, and the Old Testament. And when he did that, they burned him at the stake. You can't do that. That's God's word. Well, yeah, but we need to get into people's hands. And so there's always been this push against people getting into their word. And beloved, if you look at our culture today, 
you don't need a Bible to come to church anymore. You really don't. Because we're going to put it up there for you. We're going to give you guys what you need. You know, you just, and in some places they'll even turn the lights down so you can't even read your Bible at all. You know, they'll turn the lights down and you have to have your own phone or maybe use your own phone to look at the word. But I desire for you and the church should desire for you to hold the word in your hand. It is amazing on how many people do not know the word. And so if you were to call me or ask me, well, how do I read it? Do I read it from front to, you know, the back, to cover to cover? There's different ways. That's one way. You can read it that way. Just know that the Bible is not chronologically placed in order. There's going to be a lot of things that are going to be out of order if you do it that way. But I would argue and I would, I would present to you that probably one of the best ways to read the Bible is to, first of all, get to know who Jesus is. Because, well, we're Christians, right? And uh, you want to know who Jesus is. If I'm going to call myself a Christian or Christ-like, Christianos is the, the Greek word for it. If I'm going to be a little Christ, is the little translation, then I need to know what I'm trying to be like. And the best way to do that is to read the gospel messages. The gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I recommend, and don't have to follow it that way, but I say start with the book of John. The book of John is not like the synoptic gospels. The synoptic gospels, they're all the same. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're, they're identical almost. And John is a little bit different. So start with John and read through John. And when you go back, when you finish with John, go back and go over Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then read John again. And it's going to be redundant almost because you're going to be saying, I just read this. Well, wait a minute. And, and what you have, what you're getting is the perspective of the writers from their understanding of what they saw and what they, what they observed and, and also Jesus Christ himself. And every one of them had a very powerful experience with Jesus and the Holy Spirit reminded them of all these things. Now, they did not start writing about Jesus Christ right away. They didn't. As a matter of fact, they really truly believed that he was going to come back. Because he says, I'm coming back. All right, we're waiting. And they waited. And since he showed up and he appeared to them on the first day of the week, that's when he resurrected and appeared to them, they, they were together every day. And then the first day of the next week, he appears again. And then the first day of the third week, he appeared again. He says, you know what? The first day of the week, he's going to come back again. And on the fourth, uh, the first day of the fourth Sunday, he ascended into heaven. And they all waited at the Mount of Olives. He's coming back. He's coming back on the first day of the week. Maybe next week. Maybe next week. Maybe next month. And they kept gathering on the first day of the week. First day of the week. First day of the week. To, and they were expecting the return of Jesus Christ. Now, there was a shift, of course, from Sabbath to Sunday, Saturday to Sunday. And uh, there was a, a there's, there is a big, you know, commotion about that. You have Seventh Day. You have, of course, Jewish uh, t- uh, tabernacles, excuse me, synagogues that meet. And... Um, and so, but it was an indicator. Jesus never said worship him on Sunday or Saturday. He just said gather. Hebrews says, do not neglect the gathering of the saints. If we want to be biblical, we should meet every day. Every day we should be here. Every day we should be hearing instruction. Every day we should be fellowshipping. Every day. But you see, in, in God's economy, and as, as the church started to progress, they would meet on a regular day. And then in the evenings, and sometimes during the week, and they became a family, huge family. It got so big that there were people being neglected, women especially, the, the widows of the Greek and the Hebrews. They were being neglected. They established the deacon system, the table waiters, to, to wait on these women. And, and, and so they were, because the apostles were praying and reading the scriptures, we got, we got to see what this means. And so when, when they were, when they began at the very beginning, from the beginning, from the beginning, 
you had these heresies come up, like the Judaizers or those from the Jewish tradition. You had the Gnostics that came up with their mysticism and ideas and thoughts. And, and you had all these different sects coming up against the church. And it took almost 300 years at the Council of Nicaea to finally get to the point of saying, this is what the Trinity is. The Trinity just didn't happen. You know, we'll call it the Trinity. Most people will argue with you the word Trinity is not in the Bible. You're right. It's not. But after careful study and careful prayer and going over the, the church fathers and what they believed, and, and at 300 years, they focused on formulating what the Trinity meant. Now think about that. Our United States is what, almost 270 years old, I guess, or something like that? Try to put that in, in context of the time the United States has been in existence to the time it took them to put this doctrine together. It was formalized again in 400 A.D., the Council of Chaldean, and um, Council of Nicaea, they, they put it together, Council of, and, and these were just various scholars and theologians and Bible scholars, you know, people that knew the people that knew the people that actually walked with Jesus. It wasn't that far removed. And so they, they talked and they experienced and they wrote and they, they this, Jesus is fully God and fully man. And the Holy Spirit is the third person of the, of the Trinity. It's the, he's a triune God. And so fr from that point forward, it's been, people have been going against the doctrines of the church. And when the church got comfortable for the next 1500 years, the church got really comfortable and the church started to put in their own ideas, their own thoughts on what indulgences mean. Uh, pedal baptism, baby baptism came in during that time. That was like three, 400 years later. There were a lot of other culture shifts that took place. There was this king named Constantine. Constantine, they don't believe that he was a Christian. They believe more that he was more partial to Christians. More than likely, his wife was a Christian. And uh, he was the ruler, the king of Rome. And he says, you know, I, I want you guys to stop fighting with all these religions. Let's make it just one religion. And it's going to be Christianity. And uh, you guys celebrating the summer festivals and the solstas and the winter equinox and the solstas. And you guys, you know, worshiping all your different gods. Do it all together. So we're going to have the celebration of Christ on December 25th. And we're going to have the resurrection of Christ and on well March or April, whatever it is, whenever the full moon hits during that time, the Passover. And so he established it. Everybody's going to be Christian. You're either going to be Christian or you're going to be dead. And guess what? That was a mass conversion at that time. Everybody became Christian. You'd think that that might be a good idea. However, it brought in all the other faiths and religions and stuff of that nature. And it infiltrated the church. And it caused all this turmoil within the church to where today, well, in, in the 1500s, at that time, that's when they started to realize, look, we got too much paganism within our church. We've got too much, too much, too many ideas of, of indulgence, indulgences. They would, they would proclaim, there was a guy named Tetzel. Tetzel was a preacher. He was a friar. He went out and he preached and proclaimed and, and he would shout and say, how dare you stand there with all that money in your pocket? And these poor people, I was like, all I got is one copper coin. How dare you sit there with that copper coin in your pocket while your loved ones are suffering in purgatory? Every time the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs was his mantra. The coffer was the box where people would come in and say, oh, here, take my loved ones out of purgatory, please. I want them to go to heaven. And they would, they just, they just took the money from the poor people to build their facilities. As a matter of fact, one of the things that, that uh, Martin Luther had, uh, had, had said, you know, th that if the Pope has all this money, why is he taking the money from the people to build his, uh, temples, his, his, Everything else, the true treasures of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. 
Thesis number 62. Thesis number 64, on the other hand, the treasures of indulgences is naturally most acceptable for it makes the last to be first, and therefore, 65, the treasures of the gospel are nets with which one formerly fished for men of wealth. And then 66 says, the treasures of indulgences are now nets with which one fishes for the wealth of men. You see, the indulgence, he didn't disagree with the indulgence. He disagreed with what they were doing with them and how they were doing them. They were going after people of money. And they were just spreading their nets. And an indulgence was a way of giving God your offering, your, your tithe or your whatever it was, but it, it, you, you shouldn't be manipulated to give it. And, and, and the writer, he considers, um, and, you know, he, he would say, well, there were a lot of, I mean, I, I can, I want to read all of them. There's 95 of them. Bottom line, his whole argument was the misuse of indulgences. Yes, give. Yes, you should, you should be able to give to the church and help the church and, and help the, the ministers that are in there, but not because you want salvation or salvation for a deceased loved one. You give because that is your responsibility to give of your time, your efforts, your talents, your treasures. And, and you do so because you're given to God. You know, I remember one time uh, this young lady gave a bracelet and, uh, and I gave it back to her. She said, yeah, it's okay. You don't have to give this. Oh, no, no. I didn't give it to you. I gave it to God. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Little Ashley. Okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. I gave it back to her grandma, though. You know, I said, I don't know what to do with this. You know, we're not going to pawn it or sell it. The problem is, is that I think that a lot of times we don't see the value in the gift. And for the church at that time, when Martin Luther went up against the church, he wasn't going up against the church to revolt against the church. He was trying to reform the church. And unfortunately, they didn't want to get reformed. And instead, they started to execute all these people. See, when we talk about the Reformation, it's good to know why all of this took place. It's good to know why it is that we are, I guess, reformed in a sense. And somebody asked me one time, what is reformed theology? Well, reformed theology is basically Christian theology. We believe that it's, and it has to do with redemption. It has to do with being justified, justification for the reformer, any, any Christian organization. And we'll all agree, number one, that God is sovereign. God is, oh, totally, yes, he is totally in control. He has to be. And that's the number one doctrine of any reformed theology, of any reformed church, of any Protestant church. And most everyone would agree that God is sovereign. The second thing is salvation. How is that done? Well, if God is sovereign and he's in control, he's the one that contributes and does everything. I don't contribute anything to that. All I bring is my sin. You see, because Ephesians tells us that we're saved by grace. It is by grace that we're saved through faith. And this not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. It's by faith through, it's by grace through faith in Christ alone. The third thing that sovereignty, self, uh, redemption or, uh, uh, yeah, redemption, the third thing is uh, the scriptures. It has to be the scriptures, the scriptures only. When Paul is dealing with the people in Coloss, there's outside visions, outside wisdom, outside intellect. Everything else is coming up. We are closer to God because we get these visions, we get these voices, we get these ideas and thoughts. And God, we're more superior than you because we're connected to God better than you are because, well, I hear God. I listen to God. And, and so this is why the scriptures are important in our day and time. When the disciples, the apostles that wrote the, the Bible, and Paul and, and every one of them, they were expecting Jesus Christ to return. They, they were expecting him to be back 
soon. I will be back, he said. And they waited for him and they waited for him. And so everything that they knew, it was by oral tradition. Because first of all, most people didn't read at that time. So it was always told exactly the way it was told to them and it was continually told that way. And by the year 100, Jesus died in 33, by the year 100, that's when all these letters started to come on. Prior to the Gospels, Paul wrote a letter. He wrote it somewhere in 60 AD. And then after that, they started to, everybody else started, you know, we need a, these guys are dying. Our, all those people that had the traditional oral tradition of Jesus Christ, they're, they're leaving us. So we need to start writing this down. And Luke, probably one of the best uh, investigative reporters, went out and he spoke with every person, spoke with Mary, spoke with uh, some of the shepherds, spoke with as many people as he could, and he wrote down what they experienced. This is what we experienced. This is what we saw. And when he did that, he did the same thing with the book of Acts. He was, was there. He traveled with Paul. And he kept saying, we and, and us and, and me and Paul. And, and so it was Luke that wrote this letter the, to, of the Acts. And he wrote what he saw as the church unfolded. When Martin Luther came on the scene, and prior to him, this, was, this had been going for some time, they wanted to get back to what Jesus said. To, to the, well, they wanted to go back to the act of worship. And in a sense, Martin Luther was saying, I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing we made it, but it's all about you. It's not about us. It's not about the money. It's not about the finances. It's not about the buildings. It's not about anything. It's all about you. When Matt Redman wrote that song, that's basically what he was going through at that time of his life. You know, we've made it into something more glamorous. You know, it's just all about Jesus. It's just, we don't even need an instrument. It's all about Jesus. Amen. When we, when we come to worship, there's two forms of worship. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to bother you with the, with the words of, of, of this, but, um, you know, there's, there's a regulative is one of them. I, I did bother you with it. How's that? Regulative. Regulative basically means that it's regular. It's that we, we, we just, whatever the Bible says to do, we will do. And if it doesn't say it in there, then we're not going to do it. The Bible says, does the Bible say that we can use organs? No, it doesn't. Okay. We're not going to use organs then. Does the Bible say that we can use a, uh, a PowerPoint presentation. No, I don't see PowerPoint in here. Okay, so we're not. And so, so there's that. And then there's the furthest extreme that says, you know, if the Bible doesn't speak against it, then we'll do whatever we can. As long as it's not totally against what the Bible says. So you got these two forms of worship that comes out of that. And, uh, well, you know, as you can see, we kind of use a little bit of both. We're, we're very biblical, or at least try to be, and, and do what the Bible says as far as how we worship, how we conduct ourselves in a, in a business meeting and, and whatnot. And, and I think it's, Fortunate, some people think it's unfortunate that we don't have in our possession a first century bulletin from the church, first church of Jerusalem. You know, because if we had this, then that would be Bible. This is how we have to do it. But I believe God left that out. I'm sure there was some sort of order. There had to be. I'm sure God left that out in order to give us the ability to worship and to organize as the Holy Spirit leads. When we talk about Reformation Day, we talk about the changes that took place you know, over 500 years ago. We talk about the Bible, that it was the sole source of authority, the supremacy of God, or, or God is sovereign, that, that salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, that the Word of God is, is totally, I mean, just inerrant. It's sufficient. We don't need anything else. Now, with that, it kind of trickles down and takes off into all, all sorts of different areas. But when we hold to those three things, that is, you know, we have a high view of God because He's sovereign. We have a, a, a sufficient view of Scripture because it's all we need. And when you go through membership class, you'll, you'll learn that from us. We have a high view of God. We have a sufficient view of Scripture. We know we have a, a proper view of man. 
You know, we're depraved, we're sinners, and, and we need salvation. And also we have a, a, an accurate view or a good view of what the church is supposed to be doing. And, and so those are four things that we hold on to dearly. Now, the style, the everything else that falls into it, we, we examine it according to Scripture, and we look at it. And yes, we're not like many other churches. We're not. We don't have the lights and the glamour and the glitz, and that's okay. You know, I'm not saying that they're wrong and that we're right. All I'm saying is that that's not what we do. And I believe God is using huge, humongous churches with that ability to be able to reach people for Jesus. We attended one over the Easter holiday, uh, Good Friday. We went to Grace Community in uh, L.A., San Fernando somewhere. Huge church. I mean, beautiful. They had an orchestra in the background, and it was beautiful. I mean, it was just singing and everything else that you can think of. And uh, reaching people for Jesus. And there's plenty of them around here as well. People come to me sometimes and says, you know, we're looking for a church. I says, well, you know, there's a lot of good ones in the area. You know, well, we like yours. They're very good. I, that, that's one of the ones I was thinking about. <laughs> you know, there's no place like this place anywhere near this place. Amen? So this must be the place. <laughs> this is it. And, and so when we talk about Reformation, we're not talking about going into some sort of stance or fight. or uh, We're talking about God is sovereign. He's in total control. And we have to believe that. He controls every single aspect. Not only does he know it, the future and the past, but he controls it. And he manipulates it. He works it. Not manipulate, but he works it in order to have his intended goal to come out. And which is to establish the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And the only source of authority that we have is his word. With that, with that known, Paul had said last week, and pull out your outlines. There, there, are, there are two outlines. One of them is already filled out for you. I shared with you last week. When I said that, that Paul says um, in verse 9, well, actually, we always thank God the Father. Uh, in verse 9, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. My first, my first point was, number one, is that Paul wanted you, people in Colossae, the church, to grow in the knowledge of God's will. And, and I mentioned that it's good that you pray for one another and we pray for you and we, you pray for me and it's, it's good. And, and we generally ask for prayer during a time of trouble, of sickness. You know, I have something going on, pastor, please pray for me. And, and we do. But see, Paul is, first of all, saying, you know, I'm, I'm really excited. I'm really glad to know what's going on. And so from the day we heard, and prior to that, we talked about the gospel message. The day they heard what? Well, that they received the gospel message. The day that we heard, we have not stopped praying for you. Why? Because Paul knows that the moment that you become a Christian, the moment you commit your life to Christ, the enemy starts to attack. The lion is prowling around like a roaring lion, the devil. And what he's trying to do, he's trying to find your weak point. And the moment you, you let your guard down, that's when he attacks. And Paul says, I'm praying for you because I know the life you came out of. I know the things that you've come out of. So I am praying for you and I want you to know God's will. In your outline there, God's will. God's will is this, that you're saved. This is good and it is pleasing to the inside of the Lord, of our Savior, who desires all people to be saved. That's his will. He desires that. Peter said the same thing. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should receive or reach repentance. That's, that's his will. That's his desire. Now, God has a permissive will, and then he has a perfect will. And 
He allows his permissive will to happen, but his perfect will, like his son had to die on the, on the cross, his son had to be resurrected, his son had to be the, the, the object of scorn, those are his perfect will. The sun rises, the sun sets, the, the world rotates until, until it's time for it to stop. That's his perfect will. But his will right now is that everyone be saved. Now, we know by Scripture that not everyone is going to be saved. So then we have to kind of dissect that. Okay, what does that mean? That all should come to repentance. Well, <laughs> he desires for all to come to the repentance. Unfortunately, not everyone will come to repentance. That's the truth of it. The second thing that God desires is that you be spirit-filled. Therefore, do not be foolish, and under, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And he says, do not get drunk on wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. That is his will. The third thing is to be sanctified. We talked about this last week. I didn't give you the verses, though. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification is basically removing all the guilt, all the garbage, all the dirt. It's basically you taking a spiritual shower every day, getting rid of all that stuff and being sanctified. Sanctified or being made holy is to be made separate. Not perfect, not pure, but you're separating yourself from this world. And more and more so, that's sanctification. You're going through that process right now. There's a a three-step process in your salvation. Salvation past, salvation present, salvation future. You were regenerated, now you're being sanctified. One day you're going to be glorified. You'll be in the presence of Jesus Christ. So past, present, future, the present part is your sanctification. As you learn, as you grow, as you develop, get rid of old habits, get rid of old ideas and philosophies, get rid of all that garbage that you've learned, and start putting in the Word of God in your life. Sanctification, He wants you to be sanctified. Uh, Fourth thing He wants you to do is to be submissive. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether be it emperor's, uh, or, or supreme. For this is the will of God, that by doing so, by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. This is God's will, to submit to authorities. And why? You know, we were talking about that the other day, and, and uh, to what to what extent do you submit to the authority? To How far do you take that? I mean, you know, right now, they, they've got all kinds of stipulations and all kinds of rules. And they just passed another law just recently, sneakily, through the last budget bill or the last stimulus package that they had and uh, that they had just passed. And inside of that, they now are able to monitor any transaction that you make over $600. That's been pushed in the bill. And that's been pushed as a, into law. There used to be a time that they would only monitor you if you did anything above $10,000. But in this package, the stimulus package that they pushed, inside of there was inserted a bunch of other laws, and one of them is, you make a you make some sort of a transaction above 600 bucks, they're going to call you on it. IRS is able to call you on it, and they will. They asked me one time, says, well, you know, what are you taking all this money out for? I'm going to spend it. What are you going to spend it on? Stuff. That's all I said. <laughs> but these laws that are being pushed into, you know, especially with all this wokeness that's going on and everything else that's happening within our schools, and, you know, there just seems to be all kinds of, all kinds of things that, that, that are just being pushed. And, and so to how far do you take that in your own Christian walk? Well, we need to be submissive. We need to follow the laws. We need to follow the things that they're putting out there. But when it comes to your time of worship, now, we didn't intentionally mean to not shut down during the pandemic, but we intentionally meant to shut down during the pandemic. How's that? <laughs> when they said everybody shut down and uh, uh, you can't be meeting, the good thing is, is that we weren't Probably a little, not not as probably a little bigger than this. We had more people, you know. And, and, and the good thing was is that most people were able to stay home. We did shut down for a moment because we all got sick, you know. Some of us did, but we we opened back up, 
And we were open because worship is essential. The moment they start telling you, you cannot worship. You got to go against God. You got to throw your Bible away. You got whatever the case may be. It's the time to start revolting, I guess you would say. No, I serve a risen Savior. I will be submissive. But as far as the Word of God says, I need to worship. I need to pray. I need to gather. I, I can't neglect the gathering of the saints. That was our biggest cue there. We can't neglect that, as some are in the habit of doing. And we need to continue doing so to encourage one another until the day comes. You know that it's uh, God's will for you to suffer? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to faithful Creator while doing so. And God wants you to be thankful. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God. God's will does not necessarily mean or have in focus what is God's will for my life? Who do I marry? What job do I have? Uh, what kind of God? This is God's will. When you are saved, spirit filled, sanctified, when you are suffering and submissive and thankful, then everything else seems to fall into place. You'll find somebody that is saved, that is spirit filled, that is sanctified. And you will marry that person because they're submissive and they understand the, the word of God and they're willing to suffer and they're thankful for the person that you are. When you are, when you are saved, spirit-filled, sanctified, you will find the job that God wants you to be in. And personally, I don't think God really is not really interested in what type of job you have as long as it's not illegal, immoral, and unethical. And you'll, you'll do your work in the business that you have, thanking God, being saved, being spirit-filled, being sanctified, and being submissive to your boss. Because that's, that's what God said. And you'll suffer the consequences for your faith. That's what's going to happen. You thank God. You thank God. I, I spoke a lot on the fruit of the, uh, the fruit of the Spirit, excuse me, bearing fruit. And I have the, the outline in the back uh, for you, so you can go over that as well. Just some, some notes from last week. But let's, let's go back over to our notes as we go back into Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. Let me read that to you once again. Verse 9 through 14. And so, Paul says, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you show us and lead us and help us to apply this word to our life today. Thank you so much. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your outlines from last week or if not, remember, number one, Paul's desire for the church as he prays is, I want you to grow. Remember that. I want you to grow in knowledge of God's will. In Philippians 1.9, he also said, And it is my prayer that your love may abound, grow, more and more, with knowledge and all discernment. There is knowledge, there is understanding. It's more than just emotion. Many people operate on emotion. I operate on emotion. And I go by what I feel is right. And, whatever, and a lot of times I have to step back and take a look at it. Okay, but what does the Bible say? 
And I have learned how to operate on knowledge that I've learned from Scripture. Okay, this is what I feel like doing, but this, I know what the Bible says. I, I've been reading it for so long, I, I understand what it says. And that's what we need to do, get into the Word of God. And Peter even tells us in uh, 2 Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Okay, number two. Second, second point was walk worthy of the Lord. We spent a lot of time on walking in, in um, the book of Galatians and the book of Philippians. And basically, uh, it, it is your style of life. It's, it's the way that, in the direction that you're going. You need to walk worthy of the Lord. And Paul told them in Colossians, he says, so walk in a manner, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. How do you please God? How do you please Jesus Christ? I mean, what do I have to do? Well, the first thing you do is you obey. The biggest indicator that you are a believer, a genuine believer, is that you obey. That you're, you obey His Word. When you obey His Word, you are given evidence to the world that you are a genuine believer. Why do you want, why do you want to do that? Well, because the Bible says, you're going to go to church? Yeah. We shouldn't neglect to gather into the saints. Why? Because that's what we have to do. I got responsibility. That's where I got to be. You know, why do you give? Because that's part of my responsibility. Why do you do that? And when you obey, why do you serve at the church? Why, whatever question it is that people give you on God's word, it's an indicator to them. It should be that you're a genuine believer and they, they are going to watch your walk closely. Walk. You've heard that? Walk your talk. Walk your talk. If this is what you say you are, then walk it because people are observing you whether you like it or not. You say you're a Christian. You say you're a believer. You say that there's something going on in your life. Walk it. And, uh, you know, if you're not walking that walk, please do not call yourself a Christian. And don't say that you come from our church. <laughs> Just kidding. Really, I mean, if you're, if you're a believer, then walk it. Now, we're not gonna, we're not gonna hit it 100%. We don't. Because we're sinful. We're sinners. And, and, and when I sin, I don't revel in it. I don't, oh, yeah, well, that was good. That was great. It sickens my heart. It should. Sin ought to make you sick and lose it. I mean, just, you know, Lord, I am sorry. And, and I'm not going to do that again. But if we keep going back to the same sin, then there's something wrong. We've got to repent. This is what repentance is all about. The third thing is to bear fruit. And we spent a lot of time in bearing fruit in John chapter 15, which is, I believe, a very powerful portion of Scripture. It, Jesus Christ gave it to his disciples right at the end of his life before he was crucified, and he told them, abide, 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 ten times, abide, abide, abide. Because when you abide, you'll bear fruit. And we talked about the bearing fruit, and I showed you the list. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and goodness. Uh, praise, you know, that's the fruit of the lips. And some of you are already doing some of this. Because if you're not doing this, then the Bible says that the vine is no good. It has to be cut off. And some of you are don't even realize that you're abiding and you are bearing fruit because we have this understanding that bearing fruit means numbers. You know, but, but it means praise and worship. It means meeting needs. Some of you are meeting needs without even realizing that you're meeting somebody, that you're bearing fruit that way. But when you meet the needs of other people, whether it's through food or through whatever whatever the case may be, then then that's that's bearing fruit. Righteous living. A lot of you are living righteously, or at least trying to. Holy living. You share with others. You treat others fair. You don't abuse your influence. Because that's how you bear fruit. Keep it, keep it in, repent, in, in repentance of righteousness. 
And so, and also there's some of you, I don't know if you've had the opportunity yet to lead somebody to Christ, but that's bearing fruit. And it's just a matter of helping you to be able to do that even more so. Number four, the back of your outline. Be strengthened through the Holy Spirit. Be straight. Paul's prayer is this. You know, I know that you're a Christian. I know that you've just committed your life to Christ. And my prayer is that I know that the moment you start walking that walk and talking that talk, you're going to start bearing fruit. The enemy is going to come up against you. He's going to give you every reason as to why not do, why not to do such and such or go to church or talk to somebody about Jesus or live your life in such a way because nobody really cares. Everybody's against you anyways. Why do you want to be the oddball out? Why? And that's Satan's strategy. Causes you to doubt. And this is why Paul says, I want you to be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. He says, I want you to do this happily. And, and as you get strengthened in Ephesians, he says that according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. This strength that only comes through the power of the Holy Spirit, you really don't need it, or excuse me, you really don't see it until after you've gone through what you're going through. You really don't uh, sense it until after you look back and say, wow, where did that come from? You ever do that before? You're talking to somebody about Jesus, and then after you're done, you look back and say, man, where did that come from? And that's the Holy Spirit empowering you to be bold, to be, be spoken, speaking the word of God in, in the people's lives. Because the more you know, the more information you have. And the Holy Spirit strengthens you, that he may grant you. Paul says in Romans 15, 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Number five, give thanks to the Father. Paul was always thanking God. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. When Paul, when Paul gives thanks, he always, when he, when he prayed, he always thanked God. You, you know, somebody once asked me one time, Pastor, yeah, I don't even know what to pray for. Well, just start thanking him. Thanking him for what? I don't know. Thank him for your life. Thank him for your food. Thank him for your car. Thank him for your clothes. Thank him for your home. Thank him for every job. Just start thanking him about everything you can think of. Next time I talked to the gentleman, he says, you know, Pastor Sal, just, man, I, I spent like almost an hour just thanking God for everything. Yeah. Have an attitude of gratitude. Just thank God. Thank God. Thank God. Just thank Him. And, and you do so because we realize that we really have more than what we definitely need. We really do. And when you're thanking God, you're, 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 you're not thinking of yourself or the things that you don't have. Or why don't I have this? Or why don't I have that? You're thinking about the things that you do have and how God has blessed you with so much. Just the, the people that you can contact with. You know, two-thirds of the world don't have people. Two-thirds of the world have nobody. Their parents are, are dead or been executed by various groups that are trying to get all the people out. And, and it's, a, it's a genocide in a lot of the worlds. And there's a lot of children out there that are just dying of starvation because there's nobody to take care of them. You know, you and I, you know, our garbage disposals eat more than two-thirds of the world. We throw away more food than most people have. We are a blessed people. I just thank God that I was born here, you know, on, on, on this side of the planet. I, I could have been born just about anywhere else. 
I mean, if nothing else, and I, the most importantly, I thank God for my salvation. If there was nothing else that He ever gave me, if He doesn't give me anything else, I am ever thankful for that. For all eternity. We have been saved by Jesus Christ. Saved from what? Well, this might sound kind of counterintuitive, ironic, but you're saved from God. You're saved from God's wrath. You're saved from the wrath that He's bringing upon all those that aren't His. All those that that are living their life as if there was no God. Not willing to listen to the, the Word of God. And at the end, they will say, yeah, you, we, we got to run from this guy. We know who it is. But they got to run from him. Give thanks, Paul says in Ephesians 5.20. Give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Give thanks. Revelation 7.11. Look at this. This is interesting. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. This is in the book of Revelation. This is the vision that, that Paul, that John sees. He's the revelation that he's looking at. Jesus Christ is showing it to him. This is what it's going to be like. All these creatures, everybody, the elders, and everybody, they're going to be around the throne and they fell on their faces. John is talking about this as it's already happened. They fell in past tense on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving. Even in heaven. This is how important your thanksgiving to God is. Thanksgiving is not a turkey. <laughs> we've, we've minimized it to one day of the year. Thanksgiving is not just a celebration of our family coming together. Thanksgiving is a way of life. Because it, it stretches into eternity. In eternity, they're going to be saying, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. But you're already here. Thank you, because I'm already here. And that's interesting because there's blessing, there's glory, there's wisdom, there's honor, there's praise, there's might. And thanksgiving. One of the words that most of us don't even know how to give. Sometimes our kids nowadays, they forget to say thank you. Or they have not been told or showed how to say thank you. You know, thanks is, is probably one of the words that most people don't, you know, I deserve that. You've gotten to a place, a lot of, not you, excuse me. This world, this culture has gotten to a place where they deserve, they demand. And if they don't get it, they get upset. And is there any thanks? Are we going to thank, are we going to even thank God? Thank God for what? They'll say. For the way I live, for what he's done. With the, and they blame God. We learn how to give thanks because in heaven, that's exactly what's going to happen. Number six is called the perseverance of the saints endured to the end. Endure to the end. We have to endure to the end. Perseverance of the saints is kind of, it's almost, um, well, it, it almost seems, sounds like this is something that I have to do. I have to persevere. I have to keep going. It's probably known better, it should be known better as preservation of the saints. God is going to preserve you. He's going to keep you. If you have come to a place in your life where he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, as Paul is telling the people in Coloss, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And if that has happened in your life, then he's preserving you. He's preserving you. 
Because all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. And so everything that happens in your life, everything that happens in my life, is God-ordained. And because He's persevering me, he's, He's protecting me, He's watching over you to accomplish His purpose. Because all things work together for good. If you're called according to His purpose. Because those he foreknew, he, he, uh, he justified. Those he foreknew, he, he predestined. Those he predestined, he justified. Those he justified, he called. Those he called, he glorified. The rest of Romans chapter 8. And when you are foreknown, and you are called, and you are justified, God preserves you. Because all things are together for good. And so in his Sovereign knowledge and his will and, and understanding, he knows, you, he knows where you're at. I don't know if you've ever seen that video of all these stars that are out there, Beetlejuice, and all these big giant stars that are bigger, bigger than our star, our sun. Huge, massive stars that are out there, and we're just this little puny little dot on the radar. And all these stars and planets and everything else, these, these galaxies that are out there, Everything that's out there, and God still knows where you are. The Bible says He can count every head on your hair. Every hair on your head. You have heads on your hair? I'm a little tired. (laughs) He knows where you are. He knows when a bird falls out of the sky. You know, He's going to preserve you. See, that's the whole purpose of understanding the sovereignty of God. When you understand that, it, everything else, you, know, you, don't, you may not like it. I hate it. I hate it, what I'm going through at the moment. Some of you know that my mom is ill and there's a lot of things going on, but, and I don't like it. Who would? I, I've been by your, some of your bedsides when this has happened to you. You know, I, I, I understand. I understand now a little bit more. And you didn't like it, but it, God is pushing you through. He's helping you through. He's working through you. Because you're going to endure till the end. Colossians 1.23 says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. We're going to get to this point here in a few weeks. Paul is not saying that, you know, what, what happens if you fall away? You're not going to fall away. You can't fall away. Salvation is by grace, through faith in Christ. He gave it to you. He's not going to take it away from you. How can you fall away from something that you, you couldn't even earn? You're not going to fall away. What Paul is saying, you know, if, if you stay fast and stand firm, you know, it'll show that you are genuinely a believer. Not that you're going to be perfect through this whole process, and I have not been perfect through the whole process. Believe you me. <laughs> you know, I, I've fallen back on some of my ideas or thoughts of what I, I think should happen. I repent, Lord, please forgive me. And, and not that you're going to be perfect and sound, and people ask me, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. No, you're not. Okay, I'm not. You know, and it's not that everything is going to be just peachy, no. But you stand firm. Indeed, if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope. And then 1 Corinthians 1, 7 and 8, he says, As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end. He will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. You are redeemed. You have been bought with the precious blood of Christ. You have everlasting life. Now think about this. See if you can wrap your head around this. You have everlasting life. You have everlasting life right now. So in essence, 
You are living in eternity right now. Try to wrap your head around that one. I'm in eternity already. The only thing that's holding me back is this flesh, is this, this planet. But the moment that I enter into the presence of God, I'm going to be able to see everything. Wow. I was really, I was really, man, I was dumb. <laughs> I can't believe I did that. You know, because we're already there. You're already there. It's just a matter of stepping into the temple of God, stepping across the veil. He will sustain you to the end. And Jesus Christ already knows the beginning from the end. And the moment you do, you step in, that's where you're at. You're there with Jesus Christ. You see, when we go back and we read this again, when you start from the beginning, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit, increasing as it is also, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience, with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Paul says, I've heard of you guys. I'm praying for you guys. I'm expecting great things for you guys. You guys are going to bear fruit. You, you've gone through a lot already and you're going to continue to keep going because God has taken you out of the domain of darkness into the, the world of light. And you've come into his kingdom. And because of that, Paul says, I'm excited to see what's going to happen with you. I'm excited to see what's going to happen with you, Northport. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you once again for your awesome word, Lord. It is just filled with so much wisdom and, and gives us insight and helps us to, to just keep going on in spite of what it is that goes on in our life. And so we want to worship you. We want to praise you. We want to love you. We want to give to you our thanksgiving. We want to thank you for everything that we have and even for those things that we don't have. I thank you, God, for not giving me the things I wanted, lest I forget about you. So, Lord, thank you for keeping us humble, keeping us connected, and helping us to grow. Lord, just dismiss us now from this place, but never from your presence, I pray. In Jesus' name, and everyone says, amen and amen. All right.